So you like bold red wine most of the time With notes of fig and raisin You like a cold brew and pitching horseshoes As the sun is fading You like football games and dishing out nicknames The Godfather's one and two But not so fast, we got a podcast We like that too we like that too. We like that too. We like that too. We like that too. Hey, Bon Vivants, welcome back to the We Like That Too podcast. This is Brad Jones. And once again, we are finally coming to you from the Bon Vivant International Media Center. We have been somewhat uh, on AWOL from, from yeah, the old studio. Yeah. And of you know, course, joining me is the, the head Bon Vivant himself, Mr. Keith Inlow. Thank you. It's like John Denver said, hey, it's good to be back home again. It is. The happy it's always confines. always good to come home, the, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. It's been a while, but we have had, we've had a lot of fun. But we did have fun on the road and, uh, we're going to do more of that. We've, we've teased you guys with that, our Bon Vivant. So but we're going to do more, but it's always nice to be back. It's like sleeping in your own bed. It is like sleeping in your own bed. You got your own lights. We've got our, you you know the mics are where they're supposed to be and hey listen we have a great show <laughs> i know i'm excited we today. we have a bona fide you know actually i've been working on this do you know what do you know what this show is all about keith well i i don't know what you're going to say so i'll say no it's all about the bass <laughs> Very good. You've been working on that a while. I've been you? working on that one. I've been working on that. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, we'd like to welcome to the We Like That Two table, Mr. Artie Langston, bass player extraordinaire. Yeah. Artie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Welcome, Artie. Here. You bet. We're you know, here's, here's the other thing about Artie is, you know, we... We keep finding these hidden gems locally that we didn't even know about. You and I both grew up here, and people will always suggest these guests to us, and it's like, yeah, they're right here in Jeff City. And we're like, wow, a world resume, a global resume that we're going to talk about later. But you well, know, Ray Cardwell, right here in our own backyard. Ray Cardwell, we said, I don't know that we know Artie. And, and Ray looked at us like we'd grown yeah, like an we extra crazy. head or something. Yeah. I, was like, I was like, well, I, I wrote it down, and uh, we got a hold of Mr. Langston, and we yeah, were Ray was thrilled like, think, to have him You think I'm here. a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show. I mean, he is a bon vivant beyond scope. I think I we mean, knew that yeah, coming in, yeah. I mean, he's... Uh, He's traveled the world, and I, I guess probably already the easiest way to start this is uh, why don't we just start at the beginning? Because not only have you traveled the world, but you're a local guy. I mean, you grew up here in Jeff City. I did. I started out here. In your bio, it says that you were musical like from the beginning, from step one. How did it start? Was it family? It's always interesting to me to hear musicians you know. What was your influence? Where'd you first get exposed to music? How'd you latch onto it? There's three questions there. <laughs> you know, I have to be honest. I think it was the old uh, Peter Gunn television show. Oh, really? Well, the whole show yeah. had jazz soundtrack throughout yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, I did. And I was just immediately attracted to it, and it just kind of lit up a little light inside. Wow. Um as a little kid, my uncle had brought back a very nice viola from Europe. I probably needed a half-sized violin, let alone a viola, which is like a double-sized adult violin. Yeah. And that didn't stick. I wanted to play the bass, actually. 
And they said, no, you're too low. We don't have a base in the elementary school, you know. So I just uh, picked it up in high school when I was about 15 or We're 16. talking stand-up bass. Or are we talking bass guitar? Oh, both. Okay. But but they start you on the string, the stand-up string bass, right? I mean, and that is that where you... Well, that was my choice. You learned to bow at first. I, I, and... didn't, I didn't have a formal education in school. I wasn't in the orchestra. In fact, the other kids were just kind of astounded because I just showed up... <laughs> <laughs> enrolled in band as a freshman. But who's this kid? Yeah, and they'd all been in, in sure. band since the, like the fourth grade or something. You yeah. Know? And so uh, at that time, this was right before Mr. Hoover came and George Cisco was here. Mm-hmm. And George was very nice about it. He said, well, you're going to be in the band. You're going to march. You can't march very well with the string bass. So he sent me home with a uh, sousaphone, and a couple of weeks later, I was playing in the band. The tuba, as, yeah. we, as we say. Yes. Yeah, the marching version of the tuba. Mar- is the marching version of the yeah. tuba. Yeah. Wasn't there a Woody Allen movie? I, I'm sorry. Oh, there was. It's there's a wonderful a Woody scene. Allen, there's a Woody Allen movie. You you know which one I'm talking oh, about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's playing the, the viola or whatever, and he... he He's in the marching band, so he has to move his chair to keep up with the I band. I have not seen that one. It's a, it's a cello, which, cello, you, which yeah. you have to play sitting down. Yeah, right. yeah. You literally can't play standing up. <laughs> right, yeah. That's hilarious. So I he'd don't run know ahead that about 30 feet, and then they'd <laughs> band to catch up with him. And <laughs> then he'd fall behind. and sit down and play some more. Oh, that's <laughs> a wonderful bit. All right, well, you know me. I'm the one who's got to keep us in order here. And, uh, Artie, if you haven't heard the podcast yet, this is the layout. One bottle, two good friends with our guest, and three top picks. So we got to do the one bottle first. So we found out through a little research, and so we're going to taste a bourbon today. How's that sound? Oh, that sounds wonderful. All right. Because, you know, Nashville being a music city and we're talking a music show, Mr. Jones had the great idea to sample a bourbon out of Nashville, Tennessee. Now, this is a Tennessee bourbon. This is a true bourbon. It's not just like uh, Tennessee whiskey, which is nothing wrong with that either, but it meets the requirements to be called officially a bourbon. This one is Bell Mead. Bell Mead is historic in the Nashville area. Uh, started in the late 1800s, and of course, you know, like all distilleries and and uh, alcohol producers uh, suffered the blows of prohibition. And then about 2006 made a comeback. A couple of guys coming out of college wanted to revive Bell Mead, and they did that. And what we're drinking today is Bell Mead Reserve Bourbon. It is 108.3 proof, so this is 54% alcohol by volume. We are drinking it on the rocks today. We got a big brick in there. So. We have tasted this. Uh, Brad, Brad and I got to taste this, Artie. At a Bell Mead tasting, they actually brought their distillers to town. Uh, it was hosted by our bottle sponsor, Bar Vino, beautiful downtown Jefferson City. Now Bar Whiskey is open, so we've got a double sponsor. Does that mean we get double bottles? I think we should get one from each. Let's lobby for that. <laughs> and um, <laughs> One from each. But uh, we got to taste Bell Mead back at the Greenbrier Bell Mead tasting, and uh Great idea tasting it again. So what do you guys think? I think it's I think it's wonderful. It's uh I mean, for the proof that it is, I think it's smooth. It's a beautiful color. The, the color's is very the, smooth. The color's gorgeous. It's got that beautiful golden caramel color that you anticipate in a bourbon. Uh not too light, not too dark, just beautiful golden color. What do you smell on the nose? Artie, I heard you say that the bouquet was really, really nice. What do you what are you picking up? I'm getting some caramel. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of caramel, some, vanilla. A caramel, caramel, vanilla. Caramel, caramel and yeah. vanilla sounds. Not just a vanilla taste, but the uh, 
smell of the vanilla blossoms, you know, in the Right. Well, Bell Mead, the next time you go down to cut your record, stop by the old Bell Mead. Those were nice yeah, guys. Yeah, Greenbrier, they did Bell a Mead. really nice they tasting. Were, they did a great tasting. This this is smooth. You're exactly right. For as high proof as this is, it is very smooth. There's no hug to it at all, really. A little I don't bit in the throat, but not, not bad. Very it's much. Just, just warmth um, and a long finish. I mean, this stuff stays on your tongue a long time. At least it does for me. And, you know, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the price point on this, but I think it's affordable. It's not bad. I, had I don't, I don't my, remember. It was, I remembered like 30 to 40, something I like have that. It on, I had it in my bar, so it wasn't too expensive because you know me. <laughs> <laughs> I will drink expensive liquor, but I don't like paying for it. Value, so. value, value. Value, value, value. Mm, this is right. a good value one. So Bell Mead Reserve bourbon uh, out of Nashville, Tennessee. So highly recommend it. Very good. You Myself can, as well. Just give you a two thumbs up. Already gives you yeah. two thumbs up. So, Absolutely. Right. So there it is. I want to get back. Yeah, tell the story. I don't know if you're familiar with Cannonball Adderley. I saw, the quintet. I was going to ask you about this. First of all, I love band names and where they got that one. I'm, you're, you can tell the story because no, I, I have it down. Um, Cannonball, Cannonball was, Adderley. He was quintet. a large man. <laughs> He was a round man. Built like a cannonball. Yeah, huh? he was built like a cannonball. Uh, but a wonderful, wonderful human being. And uh, I would actually follow the quintet around the Midwest. You know, probably at that time, they were among some of the biggest jazz luminaries there were, along with Miles Davis and people like that. He right. was, uh, after Charlie Parker passed away, he was supposed to be the next Charlie Parker. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. And so uh, I... Uh, Took bass lessons from Walter Booker, the bass player. Walter would let me stay in the hotel room sometimes, sleep on the floor. I take it you weren't making much at that point other than uh, you were learning an awful lot about your craft. You know, actually, I was doing pretty well for a college kid. <laughs> uh, the thing that impressed me the most about about music was that you almost immediately start making grown-up money because you're playing with grown-ups. Well, yeah, yeah. And those guys have homes and families, and and the union at that time was really strong, and you got scale. But you're 19 years old at this time, right? Are you even, you know, you're, you're college age. Yeah, 18 or 19. Yeah. So how'd they find you, or did you find them? Well, I approached them, and I approached Walter Booker. I told him, I said, I really want to study with you. He says, well, that would be great if you want to move to Los Angeles and wait till I'm off the road. And I said, well, how about if I just follow you guys around the Midwest? So that's what I did. They adopted you. <laughs> yeah, all these different cities around the Midwest. Oh, man. So much to my horror, uh, Walter would periodically make me play for Cannonball. And have Cannonball critique me. Oh. oh. So one of the pieces of advice I got from Mr. Adderley was there will always be universities and they will always be glad to take your money at any time. And if you're going to school because you want to be a musician, he said, he said, are you getting paid to play? And I said, well, of course I'm getting paid. I don't go out unless I'm getting paid. He said, well, you are a musician right now. So he said, you can always go back to school. He said, you need to be heard. You need to be recorded. You need to be, to be playing. He said, you can always go back to school. So I uh, left Warrensburg. And that was the kind of a funny story in itself. I had been out with a rock band. They had the same issue the Spinal Tap had. <laughs> Couldn't find the stage. No, where the where the drummers where the drummers kept self destructing. 
And, uh, I this, thought maybe you were going to say they had an 18 inch stone hinge. <laughs> they had a little stone hinge. Oh, I wish that would have been marvelous. <laughs> but after about six weeks of them, this, uh, and also a, a job in Greencastle, Indiana, where the booking agent tried to pass us off as another band that had just been on American Bandstand. <laughs> it changed our name. <laughs> To the fabulous Commonwealths, and we showed up in this little bar in Greencastle. The fabulous Commonwealths? Yes. And, uh, and the, unfortunately, a lot of the barflies there had, had seen American Bandstand and didn't think we looked an awful lot like the people on. And then the present drummer, who I'm still very much friends with, Arnie Young. Arnie was, I guess, maybe 24, and he looked like he was about 12. And the cops came and busted this. They thought that Arnie was a runaway. I thought he was like 12 years old or something. He's this hard-drinking 24-year-old, you know. But uh, at any rate, that the whole thing just kind of fell apart. And I had had some buddies there, and they said, hey, uh, why don't we go down to the uh, Eureka Springs, Arkansas Folk Festival? You can probably sit in with some of these old guys and, and thump the bass a little bit. It'll be kind of fun. But there's, you know, there's fun stuff going on, too, and lots of music and cool stuff. Eureka Springs, fun, fun little place. It's a very fun little place. Yep. And uh, so uh, we went down there, and uh, among the other fellow hippie kids was a lady named Cindy Williams. Lucinda Williams. Lucinda Williams Lucinda now. Yeah. Now? Yeah. Now, yeah. yeah. She got she got fancy on us. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Cindy Williams then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so she came back to Warrensburg with us to hang out. And we hung out and played all summer and just had a ball. Oh, my God. And we worked gosh. on all her original songs and other stuff. And, wow. And played all around uh, that part of Missouri. And you two maintained that relationship for to now, right? Well, we no, maintained I mean, the friendship. And yeah. this was before, of course, you know, our fancy phones and everything. So I'm getting postcards all the time saying, hey, Artie, you need to come down to New Orleans. I'm playing at this place. You need to come down there and, and we'll – We'll play in this bar, kind of get the act back together. So I said, well, this sure beats what I'm doing now. So I just packed up uh, my station wagon with my bass. I didn't have a whole lot of money at that point, and I just headed for New Orleans. So I get to New Orleans and uh, with a couple other hippie kids who wanted to, to go on the road, and we wound up sleeping in a cotton field in Mississippi on the way down. And- <laughs> This would make a great movie. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we, we need to write this down. Uh, Artie, Artie, that station wagon. Artie, we need to write this one down. Yeah. 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 So, so we get down there and I don't know a soul. I have almost zero money and I go by the bar where uh, Cindy's supposed to be and she's gone. She's taken off for San Francisco. Whoops. So here I am. I don't know a soul. I don't know anybody. So the nice lady there, Joanne, owned uh, Andy's on Bourbon. She said, well, do you, what do you do? I said, well, I, I play the bass. She says, well, can you sing? And I said, well, not if I want to keep my job. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, well, well, sing a few songs and play. And, uh, you know, I'll give you, you know, I'll feed you and give you a little bit of money, you know. And so uh, that afternoon I sat there with my 
my big bass singing jazz standards and playing and the word starts to get around with a lot of the older new orleans musician you got to see this crazy sob he's down there in this bar with just the bass singing so it's just a bass no no percussion no, no piano so you like oh pluck, my god just the bass. Well, you, so do you pluck out the melody then at least a little bit or you yeah, just I play, kinda, I play solos yeah but mostly i'm singing you know oh my gosh and this uh, really is a movie this is a comedy shit if nothing else this is great and so i started making connections and there was a an older gentleman named uh, eddie edmondson that played piano there at night and i started working with him and i met some other kids and and so i thought well i'll go to san francisco at that point i'd gotten a good taste of new orleans and i said boy this is for me and i had a union card so i i picked up a few good good jobs yeah you couldn't work steady unless you had transferred in and waited a couple of weeks and i got to san francisco and apparently cindy had headed for austin texas <laughs> two ships passing in, in the, the night. night exactly or one ship chasing <laughs> the one other ship chasing the other yeah, yeah. so I, so i want to ask you so this story of the 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 lady who owned the bar who kind of offer you a way to at least halfway support yourself playing solo with the bass and singing was that a natural environment in the music scene back then did you find that certain bar owners or establishments would try to reach out and help struggling musicians absolutely not most of the places were owned by mobsters oh really yeah okay and uh with you know, some notable exceptions. Yeah, you know. yeah. So it that turned, was sort of an exception to the rule it that turned she did out that. That, that Joanne was part of this circle of friends that I kept my whole life okay. with people I played street music with and professional music with and, yeah. and stuff. So I got to San Francisco and um, started playing street music with these other guys I'd come with. And we were, at one point, we were making $75 a day each Woo. in 1971. So is this this the Haight-Ashbury sort of got vibe? or? Well, uh, we were playing like at Montgomery Market and in front of the... So you, when you say street music, you're talking about busking, right, basically? Yeah, with, but with, yeah, a, with a, a group, but not by yourself. With a six-piece. Yeah. Yeah, normally So you're working for band. tips. But you're working for the, 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 the money Tourist. people will throw in your bucket. Yep, and, okay. we're, and we're raking in... We're working about six hours a day and making seventy-five dollars each in nineteen seventy-one. That's, that's good money. That's back good then. money. A week's pay was one hundred and fifty bucks for a lot of people. Yeah, but we were we were actually doing a full six-piece band, and at one point we had such a big crowd in Chinatown down on Pacific that the cops just threw up their hands and directed traffic around us. Wow. wow. We completely blocked the street in front of the Bank of China. Wow. Did you name yourselves? Did you have a... Yeah, it was the Bourbon Street Irregulars. <laughs> <laughs> and... Love band names. Did you have to have permits? I mean, any, or could you just go out and play? Did no, you have- we were just going out and playing. Okay. And if there was a singer songwriter there, you know, the folk singer or something, you know, barely making any money, we just you know pull off a tin and throw it and say get lost. Yeah. And <laughs> sort of like turf. Take, sort of like turf board. This is yeah. our quarter, buddy. Yeah. yeah. Take the spot. Pay well, we off. weren't we weren't forcing them right, away, right. but but we just we'd, we'd give them more money than they would ever make. Yeah. You know, yeah. and say, pay him to go away. Yeah, yeah, just pay him to go away. So there was amazing singer songwriters in San Francisco around that time. I mean, that was that was like music ground zero. Did you have some of those folks come around and and listen that you knew of? You know, I'm not sure about that. Uh, later, I came back to keep my my student deferment. <laughs> 
And I, <laughs> yes, it was that time. It was. It? Yeah, yes. I came back to Kansas City and worked with the PDI Trio and some of the better groups in Kansas City. I did real well professionally, actually, in Kansas City. So then I had like a pretty good award chest of money. And when I went back after the lottery thing came in, I uh, studied with Phil Carp, who was the uh, principal of bass with the symphony. And Phil uh, fixed me up with a gig with the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra. And, you know, I did I did pretty well. I um, was also in a house band at a place called The Boarding House. And so I got to back up people like uh, Bette Midler, wow. uh, Tom Waits. They were kind of starting out back then. They yeah, weren't just yeah, big yeah. stars. They became later. Yep. Uh, I got to play with Lightning Hopkins. Lightning Hopkins. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, some really cool stuff came out of the, the boarding house gigs. Nice. And so I, I really got to enjoy the San Francisco before the, the blight of uh, Silicon Valley kind of erased a lot of good things about the area. How long were you in San Francisco, and then did you go back to New Orleans then? I was there a couple of years, and I went back to, to New Orleans. That's uh, the part I want to talk to you about for a minute, because he has worked with the absolute legends of, of New Orleans music. Yeah. I mean, Dr. John, the one I wanted to really ask you about, though, uh, James Booker. Oh, Booker. That's an interesting cat. He's the one that had the one eye. Yeah. And he had Okay, a, I'm going to fess up. I mean, a, I know Dr. John. I do not know all these jazz musicians yeah. like Brad does. He's a he's a big jazz fan. I like jazz, but not as much as Brad. Well, and, and Alan Toussaint. And, I mean, you've got the who's – you've worked with the who's who of New Orleans. And I sat and looked at this list. I was like – I even sent a note to my brother who loves New Orleans as much as I do. Look at the people that he's worked with. And he's like – Oh my gosh, I would love to be there to listen to that. <laughs> well, right, so, that so edu- educate Tell the, us about educate it. the uninitiated. Well, the older gentleman I'd played with at Andy's, when I came back, he had passed away. And uh, Jim Monahan, who was one of the good guy club owners, had opened up a club called uh, Easy Eddie's in his honor. And the guy they got to, uh, to do the after hours gig uh, was Snookum Russell. And Snookum had been a really successful territory band leader. Uh, territory bands were bands like Ellington and Basie, and they were just called territory bands because they'd work a territory. Yeah. They go all over the South and the Southwest and the East so, Coast. What we call regional bands. Today. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. I've got pictures of him being endorsed by people like Father Hines and a lot of famous musicians. Uh, he had Charlie Parker working for him. So wow. He he gave Ray Brown his very first gig on bass anywhere. <laughs> he gave J.J. Uh, Johnson, the great trombone player, he gave him his very first job. He gave Dizzy Gillespie one of his very first jobs. Wow. wow. He gave Fats Navarro one of his very first jobs. It's like a who's who of the whole bebop scene yeah. uh, learned from Snookum. He's the one that taught him the business. Was that before Ernie Cato's place? Yeah, that was like in the uh, 30s and, and uh, oh, that was 40s. way back there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And Snookum had fallen in love with his wife, Alice, and he held down the gig at the Paddock Lounge for 25 years. And Snookum set, set me up for it because he wanted better things for me. And so he got me uh, the gig with uh, the great Louis Jordan. Oh, Louis Jordan? Yeah, Timpany Five, Louis Jordan, yeah. Uh, 
12-piece band led by Wallace Davenport, who'd been uh, Ray Charles' band leader and uh, Count Basie's lead trumpet player. So you can imagine what that band was like with Louis Jordan out in front of them. Yeah. And Louis passed away about a year later, but he was still in in great form. He was kicking head high and just playing and singing just at the height of his powers. So that was a really fantastic experience. Oh, my gosh. But uh, that that gig at Easy Eddie's, a lot of people would come through and sit in. And uh, Alan Toussaint was among one of them. And Mac Rabinac, Dr. John, was another. And that's how I met these guys and became friendly. And uh, Alan, you know, would throw me work. I'm on the first ever Popeye's chicken commercial <laughs> that was ever cut, radio spot. Excellent. And uh, Was the Palm Court a thing then? What were some of the venues then that you worked at? Well, in, let's see. In, I did the Jazz Brunch at Commander's Palace. <sighs> and, uh, oh, yeah, free, <laughs> oh, free lunch at Commander's Palace oh, every Sunday. Oh. You would have had to pay me another nickel. <laughs> We're going to talk about that when we get to the uh, food cities and the top yeah, three yeah. picks here. Yeah. I guess you may guess what mine might I would, be. I would, I would sub sometimes, too, with Al, uh, Al Hurd and Pete Fountain's band. Wow. And uh, there was a really great band called the Storyville Jazz Band I, I, I'd sub for a lot. That was led by uh, George French. They had some great musicians in it. And uh, Ellis Marcellus. Uh, Winton's father. Dad. Right. Yeah. yeah, he was the piano player with us. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So I was going to ask you if He's you had the, yeah. the Marcellus folks, and then did you ever work with the Neville brothers? Uh, I did not work with the Neville brothers. I'm good friends with George Porter. Uh, we're both Aguilar uh, amplification endorsers. And you did Jazz Fest. Oh, yeah. Jazz Fest has has gotten even bigger, you know. You oh, know, yeah, it's, it's grown it's exponentially. two weekends now. Um, when I retire, I'm going down there for two full weeks, and I'm going to Jazz Fest. I was going to mention something else that was a really wonderful experience. Uh, I was a full-time member with uh, the Olympia Brass Band. I was going to mention and the that. And bands. If you didn't. Are you familiar with uh, Rasan Roland Kirk? I am not. He he was a fantastic Musician, he would play three horns simultaneously. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I have a real nasty uh, mental image of how that works you think, out. You think Dizzy Gillespie's cheeks puffed out? <laughs> you should. You ought to see Rasan. How you get? How you get through? But Rasan Roland Kirk is just a legend. He's up there with you know Miles Davis and people of that caliber. And uh, Rasan is was blind. Uh, since birth and we became friends in san francisco he marched with us at jazz fest and he held on to the back of my sousaphone just kind of put his hands you're playing you're playing the sousaphone you're playing tuba when you yeah. were with the olympia and, and, and he just occasionally take his hand off the clarinet touch that sousaphone to see where we were going and i'd whisper something like we're going left <laughs> <laughs> and because uh, we're on the racetrack there's no radical moves yeah. you know? well you know yeah. you're gonna go left at some point yeah, yeah. yeah. but yeah so i got the uh, march with uh Rasan and cool. so we, did you feel how much did you play with olympia then i mean did you go out on second lines and did you go out oh yeah, and, yeah. i played dozens and dozens, funerals and stuff dozens of them oh my gosh uh, oh. officially i'm supposed to be guaranteed one of course i'm not living in town anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right explain the second line well they're, they're the they're the new orleans it's not you can't call it a funeral it's well, a, it is it's a, a funeral. Yeah, no. but it's a celebration of, I mean, it's, it's more a celebration of, can, of life. Right, it's part of the can fe- explain it's, it because it's, right. it's real, it's very sad. It is. Going 
to the cemetery. Yeah. But coming back is the resurrection. Right. And so right. they just bust loose. Bust, yeah. bust loose. <laughs> yeah. And the second line are the people that dance alongside the family. Right. The brass band tradition kind of got started because at one point there was no such thing as life insurance for black people or for white people. And so people black and white form these benevolent associations. Uh, one that survives is the Odd Fellows. Right. They're right. very well known. And right. that was their whole purpose in being. Was yeah. that the cruise too? The, the Mardi Gras cruise? No, that's, that's different. They're that's, just, they're just clubs. That's just clubs. They're just social and pleasure clubs. <laughs> Some of them did have a benevolent backing on them. Yeah. I think. Uh, the cruise, a, the cruise, uh, started, uh, they were not for common people. They were for the elite. Yeah. Right. The wealthy. And uh, Rex was the king of Carnival, and he was usually some big shot. And then uh, another crew that I occasionally marched with, uh, Zulus. The Zulus? Uh, they're, they're supposed to be a mockery of, of, of Rex. Yeah. And uh, Do you have a coconut? I have several coconuts. Oh, they man. Are, uh, but but the, the satire is pretty biting sometimes. It yeah. is. All right. But they kind of embrace All right, it. what's the coconut? The, you got, you got to remember, all of our Bobby Vance aren't going to know so all this Bobby stuff. Bobby Vance, there's a... There's all these throws. I mean, you've got beads and beads and beads right. and beads. But we know Mardi Gras beads. But, but the Zulus, they decorate these coconuts, yeah. and they're really something. And they hand them out. And to get a Zulu coconut is a big deal. Yeah. I mean, because they don't just throw these coconuts out to everybody like they do beads. So they're and, and the whole idea is that they they make fun of all the things that offend them the most. <laughs> <laughs> black people in New Orleans putting on blackface. Yes. And you have uh, the Zulu king who is dressed and and this is all making fun of the Hollywood image. Right. Right. If right. you can imagine Native Americans making fun of spaghetti westerns. Right. That's kind of what this is. And uh, you have the big shot from Africa, who was at one time uh, Louis Armstrong himself. And uh, he has a big cigar and a bowler hat and a grass skirt. And the whole thing is just to make really wicked fun of all the Hollywood misconceptions about. Now, the the Indians are different. The ones that have the really gorgeous costumes. Those costumes already are just... They're, they're, they, well, they work on them for. They were originally street gangs. Yes, kind of vicious and ones. They, they fought each other in. That's right. In those, in yeah. Your flag boy was the one that had the colors, and the uh, spy boy was the one that went out and gathered intelligence on. Are yeah. these guys stepping on our turf? Yeah. You know, now it's like a lighthearted calypso, but. You know, my grandma told your grandma going to set your hair on fire if you step on if you step out of the neighborhood. And there's another weird tradition too that that it's not really connected to the Indians, but it's also a Mardi Gras tradition. They got the skeleton men, mm-hmm. right? And the skeleton men are sim are similar to Krampus in Germany. Yeah, the dads will put on the skeleton costume with a big skull paper mache head that kind of resonates when they talk and they'll take like a bloody something from the butcher shop or something and they'll go around and just scare the life out of the kids Mardi Gras morning that if you don't behave yourself all year i'm coming back scare scare the kids into good behavior behavior. yeah that's right and then after that that's when the indians show up the skeleton men show up at dawn so the kids are still half asleep (laughs) 
and they're terrified. <laughs> and then the Indians come and delight them. Yeah. So that all goes away, you know. Yeah. But uh, I, I didn't know about that tradition for a long time. And there's uh, that's interesting. There, I'm not sure I knew. I knew part of that, but not all of that something, tradition. Something you might be, you, both of you might be interested in, and, I, and Artie, you may know there is a new documentary, brand new documentary on Jazz Fest, and they've got a whole bunch of people that talk about Jazz Fest. I can't wait to see it. It's a uh, Independent film. Mm-hmm. I don't know when it's coming around. Do you know the name? Um, uh, it's something. Jazz Fest. Jazz Fest. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Keith. Look, well, it, no. It's something. No, it look is. For the it's the New Fest. Orleans Jazz Fest. Yeah. Something. Okay. And I don't know if it's going to be around here, but you might look for it in your in your. Well, theaters. you know, eventually it'll hit one of the streaming services. But getting back to our friend Booker, uh, Booker and I had a uh, regular afternoon gig at the famous store for a long time i had a car so i would take booker back to the halfway house where he was <laughs> ensconced <laughs> and i felt really bad i said i said booker man i feel bad taking you he says no man he says it's nice he says i feel safe there he was character uh, yeah, he was something else man i'll tell you I, i'm so but playing with him had to be Oh, it was just, wonderful. I mean, it had to be elected. It was heavenly. Well, I played with him and Professor Longhair and yeah. different people. But, the, you know, I am so grateful that I didn't have that awful gene or whatever it is yeah. that interests people in things like heroin. Yeah. Yeah. In San Francisco, I thought I was going to make the big time. I was playing with uh, Mike Bloomfield, and it's Bill Graham Act, and we're opening for people like the Charlatans and opening for the dead and stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is it. You look out on that big sea of people, and you don't have to touch anything. All your amplification and instruments, everything's provided for you, and people run around and you know, plug and play, plug yeah. and play. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I just thought this is it boy, private jets. And, and, but Mike had, cause of his habit, he just it spoiled the gig. You know, yes. it's interesting. We segued into this cause I had it actually as a question. What, what do you think it is about either the business or the art itself, the music? You know, we hear that artists have to suffer for their craft, that kind of thing. What is it that grabs a hold of people? It seems to in in certain arts, jazz, blues is certainly one of them that, you that know, takes pe- them down that hole. People used to ask me that all the time, and lately I've been noticing on the news that there's as many physicians strung out as there are musicians. <laughs> no, I'm being very serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's apparently it's not something related specifically to creativity. It's um, Addiction is an equal opportunity offender. I get yeah. that, but you know, and maybe it's because we hear more about it in the artistic world or, or the, the creative world. The but people are more famous. Yeah, well, maybe some that's say, it. Some say it's the road. The yeah. road eventually yeah. maybe the just lifestyle kind of drives you crazy. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, or economic conditions and yeah. things. Yeah. You know, I've had several interesting experiences with that with uh, my friend Phil Urso. Phil was uh, the uh, tenor player who's on most of the early Chet Baker recordings. And, of course, that was a big thing with Chet. You know, eventually it, it killed him, you know, one way or another. You know, he was thrown out that window, but that was that was directly related to the drug thing. And uh, Phil had a similar thing. He got into it with Chet. And uh, he was getting to the point where he was going to lose his teeth and not be able to play anymore. Well, his parents had a unique solution to the issue. His parents sent over to Sicily and got him a mail-order bride. (laughs) And she solved 
the problem with a skillet. <laughs> well, and she also went. It's an aversion technique. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She also went to the local capo and said, uh, put out the word that anybody who supplied Phil would wind up no longer with us. <laughs> yeah. And so it's it straightened Phil out and well, saved his life. Yeah. Well, that'll yeah. do he, it. He got to be an old guy. Yeah. I think they call that negative reinforcement. Negative reinforcement, yeah. <laughs> With positive results. Yeah, there you go. Hey, I got one more New Orleans question, I, and I just I, – I, I need to ask this because um, of another podcast that I listened to. Did you ever in your spare time, which I doubt you had much of, did you ever get a chance to go over to the warehouse where I guess a lot of the rock bands and stuff played in the early 70s? Did you get over there? Just I wasn't about, really into the rock and roll scene. I was more – you know. Al Hurt, Pete Fountain, and yeah, well, Bourbon Street. I had such a good thing going on Bourbon Street at one time. There was a shortage of upright bass players, and the union gave me a dispensation to, to hold down two gigs. So uh, a regular gig in New Orleans is six hours long, six nights a week. So I was playing 12 hours a day, six days <laughs> wow. a week. And then on Saturday and Friday, I had an after-hours session from 3 a.m. till 7 in the morning. Oh, my gosh. So eating and sleeping wasn't a priority. You didn't have time to get into drugs. Yeah. You, you were too <laughs> – <didn't, laughs> yeah. too, too, I'd love to, but I'm just yeah. too exhausted. didn't have time I, to yeah. get into too I'd much love to get high, but I just <laughs> – right. But, yeah. yeah. So uh, – but uh, just, just to wrap up the thing about creativity and, and drugs and so forth, uh, for a long time, a lot of people assumed that uh, Charlie Parker – got addicted out of thrill-seeking or something. It turned out that there was a place in Eldon, Missouri, called Mooser's uh, Ozark Tavern, and it was a big, fancy resort. There's nothing left of it now, but it was all built with Pendergast money, Yeah, and it was a big deal, and it came up just after the the uh, a dam, after the lake right. filled up. Right, wow. and, and people started using it for recreation. Yeah, And Mooser was a tough little guy from Kansas City, and he didn't care about sundown laws. He didn't care what anybody at Eldon thought. <laughs> he wanted the best musicians he could possibly get. And so he brought down a whole lot of, of black musicians from Kansas City, of course. Yeah. You know, all sorts of great people. Sure. And, uh, Kansas City jazz scene Kansas was City, happening. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, it was oh, happening. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people that came to his joint just loved it, of course. And he'd put them up there to the resort. He didn't have to worry about prejudice and stuff. Yeah. He just gave them his own accommodations, you know. Yeah. So at any rate, they were coming down around uh, Thanksgiving one time, and there was an awful uh, car accident. And one gentleman was killed, one of the musicians, and uh, Parker uh, had a severe back injury. Mm. And that's how he got addicted to heroin because his doctors thought that heroin was a safe alternative to morphine. Oh. And so the doctors had him on heroin. Oh, wow. And that's how the the, the heroin habit started. Wow. But uh, pain control is not uh, infrequently the the cause of a lot of that, even today. The silver lining to the story, and there's no silver lining when someone gets killed, of course, but for Parker, Parker had been to New York, and he'd been kind of unsuccessful, and that's probably almost entirely due to the fact that he had the worst alto saxophone anyone had ever seen. (laughs) Someone said, I forget who who said this, it might have been Jay McShann, said it was like a mangy pet monkey. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was been beat up a little. Half the springs were gone and replaced with rubber bands. So the horn was like destroyed in this car wreck. And Mr. Muser bought him a new car and bought them new instruments. And so Parker went to Kansas City and picked out the finest Paris Selmer alto they made. Oh, wow. And that was the horn. The next time he went back to New York, nobody was laughing. Yeah. The instrument doesn't make the musician, of course. But it's who's, know, who's on the end of it, though, makes a big difference. Yeah. I, I know as a teacher, people uh, over the years have brought me kids with instruments that I can't play. <laughs> Having played 30 or 40 years, yeah. it was hard for me to get a sound out of it. <laughs> yeah. And they expect a child to excel right. on that. Yeah. And well, that's not happening. Well, that was kind of the situation Parker was in. When he was uh, provided with a real professional instrument, everything changed overnight. And all the stuff he'd been hearing in his head and couldn't quite get out of that piece of garbage yeah. alto suddenly came true. That's a great story. And uh, yeah, he was like, he and Gillespie, it was just the right time and the right place. And yeah. The other one I was going to ask, Keith, you have attended some of the most important jazz festivals on the planet. I mean, the Monterey Jazz Festival yep. is considered as kind of like the, right. the granddaddy. Yeah. When you play those kind of things, Artie, did you get a chance to hear some of the other oh yeah folks and you know yeah. tell us a little bit there about for the those. sound check yeah and uh you got you know front row seating <laughs> it's okay yeah for, yeah for i mean it's kind of be kind of offensive to invite people to montreux or someplace and, and you know make them sit in the green room or you know <laughs> so you're you're sitting in the audience and you get to witness the whole thing and then when it's time for you to go on, when you're the next act after the one that's yeah. on stage, you're on deck. Then you're yeah. on deck, yeah. and yeah. You're, you're getting ready and yeah. getting tuned up. And cool. so who are some of the who are some of those acts that were memorable that, that you remember? And you oh, think, man. oh my god, yeah, I know. It's, that's probably, yeah. probably yeah. that may favorite, be another hour. Who your favorite child is? Yeah, uh, you know, weather report. Uh, Keith Jarrett, uh, Bill Evans. Weather report. Even I remember weather report. Because they were a crossover. They crossed over into pop some, didn't they? Uh, kind of, sort of, because of the jazz fusion right. thing. Right, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they started out a little more jazzy, and then after Jocko arrived, they kind of the band kind of reformed itself around, around yeah. Jocko. Sometime in there, you've gotten three or four degrees. I don't know when you worked those in, but anyway. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's, You're a tiger. Well, that's uh, when I took. Uh, Cannonball's advice. Uh, around '84, I came back. Uh, this is after New Orleans. Yeah, my grandmother was. Uh, her health was kind of declining, and of course, she was really instrumental in raising me. So I came back, and I thought it might be a good idea to wrap wrap it up. And the music business, a lot of things were changing and shifting around. Sure. Yeah, I came back and wrapped up the bachelors, and then I went to Webster and. And got my master's. Was this the time you worked with Jim Widener? I didn't really work with Jim, but Jim did a wonderful thing for me when I was a freshman at uh, Warrensburg. He uh, wanted time off, and he uh, uh, had me set for him with the uh, Miller Band, the Glenn Miller Orchestra. Wow. The, the Just the Glenn Miller Band. Yeah, with Betty DeFranco. Oh, my gosh. So... Uh, yeah, but we were, you know, we were, we were friends for years and years and years, and I, I really miss him. I'm so yeah. sorry he's gone. 
I can't thank you enough for being here, Artie. I mean, it's it's an education for me. I hope the Bon Vivants out there who may not, who are like me and may not be as familiar with some of these uh, jazz musicians and and these stories. These stories are great, and I love them. So I do too. Um, I thank you so much. Yeah. yeah, I could sit and talk New Orleans with you. Well, quite, I'm not. Quite we're not done quite done, done yet. Orleans. So we're gonna, but we are gonna transition into the third section of our show and that is the three top picks now brad why don't you introduce this when you came up with it okay so. well i figure you've you've traveled you've got more frequent flyer miles than both of us put together times 10 because you've been all over this country and probably europe and all over and so we decided the top three favorite eating cities places maybe you're looking forward to because oh we get to go to there, 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 and there as far as uh, as eating is concerned. And so what we do is you take one, Keith takes one, I take one. We go around, and then the rabbit goes down the hole, and we go to – Tell all, stories. We've got, yeah. we've got yeah. all kinds so, of stuff that goes on. We do honorable on. mentions. We do honorable mentions. Yeah, we <laughs> cheat. It's, <laughs> our, it's our show. We can do whatever we yeah. want. Right. So anyway, you would be first. And so as far as uh, all the touring and uh, that you've done, because I would imagine that at some point you were on the road quite a bit mm-hmm. um what's one of your favorite cities where you knew you obviously keith and i we love food to eat. cities yeah. we love to eat uh what would be one of the food cities that you really enjoyed going to well it's got to be new orleans <laughs> <laughs> i mean there's just absolutely no doubt yeah. <laughs> all right and, and and what do you when you're there what do you, what did you look forward to were there certain places or dishes that you Knew you had to have. I mean, you already mentioned Commander's Palace, breakfast at Commander's Palace. Yeah, there's a place uptown, a sandwich place called Norby's that had, I thought had the best poor boy in, in yeah. town. Uh-huh. And also back then you could get a whole bunch of these little blue crabs mm-hmm. and they were just delicious. Uh, one little treat and it's on the, actually on the other side of the Lake Poncha train. Some Cajun over there. Married this lovely Chinese lady and had it opened a Cajun Chinese <laughs> restaurant. Fusion, Cajun fusion. That's got to be phenomenal. It was unbelievably good. Oh, I and don't was, doubt it. I haven't encountered anything like it. Sweet and sour crawfish. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. No, but you gotta love those oh two. The fusion of those two. Yeah, uh, I, I could see some really interesting oh, stuff I going know. on. There. I bet and that was phenomenal. That's kind of the story of New Orleans, really. You've yeah. got uh, uh, French, well, French yeah. and Italian, French, Cajun, Italian, Italian, African. Yeah, yeah. Cajun Caribbean. itself is a merger of three or four different food cultures. Uh, yeah, so. Acadia. Yeah. They came yeah. all the way from. You know, but, Canada, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, but uh, and then you've got the West Indies, you've got yeah, Africa, Afri- you've got it's South uh, America, yeah, yeah. and uh, there was still frequent commerce with all those places even sure. up until now, yeah. right? Like you, you get up early, and by early I mean like six a.m. or something, and go over to the French market when the restaurant people are are picking all the best of everything, and you can find fruits you've never seen before, yeah. yeah. And that's hard to do in a country this wealthy and prosperous to find something that you've never seen before. Not just things like plantains, which are, you know, rather common, but just all sorts of stuff that exotic stuff. And and spices also. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you can buy them in quantity. Well, well can Brad, I, can I, Brad, can I, I just say, you just, might as well jump in I'll here. I'll just get this one out I of the actually, way. I actually left New Orleans off my list because I knew it was going to be on yours. Well, it's my number one. And, yeah. it, you know, I consider I consider actually Louisiana the uh, food capital of the universe. So it's, it it's really the way is. I feel about it. But um, 
there's there's a few places. Mothers is is one of my absolute favorite places down oh, there. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't had a crawfish etouffee omelet, you just haven't quite. Oh my god, <laughs> that's a, that's a place for <laughs> you, breakfast. You yeah. had me at crawfish. Etouffee. Well, and the Camellia Grill is the other one. <laughs> yeah, the other one because you get the floor show along with that. Yeah, you and got, then the, the College Inn uptown has a great poor boy too. College. Well, you're getting fist fights about poor boys in in yeah. New Orleans yeah. because it's you like, got these little bitty places around. Like cheesesteaks in philadelphia yeah. he has the best one that's right those, Giacomo, those are fighting words giacomo's is a place and i don't know if giacomo's was there it's it wasn't it's, there when i was there. it's out well it's it's i know you'll know where it is it's next to the maple leaf oh yeah well i used to live up there right time. next to the maple leaf which was one of the famous jazz places yeah, i played there dozens, dozens of times i bet you have well right next door now is a place called giacomo's and it's been it's been there now for a long I think time. I've heard my friends mention that. Really good, really yeah. good. So we went there. And of course, the Rock and Bowl. Did you ever play the Rock and Bowl? No, nope. nope. I, I played Tipitinas. And- Tipitinas is yeah is is a legendary place. And so I used to work with Clarence Gatemouth Brown. A lot of the places around around New Orleans. I Texas. you know I sometimes we're we're getting back off the topic, but. Where do they come up with some of these people's names? Well, everybody get everybody gets nicknames. <laughs> it's you like know. The, it's like the uh, you know the mobsters in New York. Everybody's got a a nickname. So, but I, I've talked about it before already. But I think you know there's eating and there's dining. Yeah, and you go to Commander's Palace and you get dressed up and you go in. They've got two settings and you walk in and you think there is hope for humanity just eating here once yeah. dining dining that's dining and the yeah. staff is all lined up and greet you it is truly one of the greatest there's a reason why that they're still considered one of the top 20 restaurants in the whole world all the time yep antoine's uh, antoine's yeah. um yeah. galatois galatois uh, got to get dressed up and stand in yeah. line even presidents have stood in line for Galatoire's. Before I give mine, I wanted to say that, again, Bon Vivants, we have done it to ourselves. We have picked a, a seemingly <laughs> easy category that is endlessly difficult. Yes. And so, you know, I, I got to thinking about this. I had to limit it to places that I either have been or are very familiar with as far as travel. It's hard for me to pick, you know. Uh, I can't pick Bangkok as one of the top ones right. because I've never been there. I'm sure it is a great food destination, but I, I kept it to th- places that I'd been. And I also got to thinking about, you know, even in our lifetime, the, the food revolution, the current food revolution in the United States and the world, and how things have changed in the last 40 to 50 years. Interestingly enough, Janet and I started and completed the uh, HBO Max series julia about julia child Mm -hmm. and she really was in the early 60s instrumental in changing american cuisine and the approach to american cuisine from a french chef's perspective bringing traditional french food and cooking techniques to the american kitchen you know it wasn't just pot roast and meatloaf anymore don't just fry it up yeah So um, it's been interesting to watch that, the, the evolution of food TV, you know, the food channel, the food network, celebrity chefs, that kind of thing. So I, uh, I naturally picked New York City as, as my first pick simply because you can get any and everything there. You can get anything of, you want. <laughs> because of yeah. the, the, you know, it is a, yeah. it is a cultural melting pot, you know, in neighborhoods, whatever. You also, Brad, like you said, 
You have the fine dining. You can go as expensive and, and as elite and fine dining as you want. But you also have these little hidden gems that are what we might call a hole in the wall or a, a neighborhood bistro that nobody knows about outside of your little area, but it's it's the place to go in your neighborhood. And it's the best food you're ever going to get anywhere if you know about it. So I, I had to put New York City on well, my Well, I've list. got New York too. Yeah. And yeah, so you guys have both doubled on mine. We double yeah. all the time. Keith and I do no, not talk. We do. We do. No, we Keith, don't. Keith and I don't – we don't talk about this ahead of time. So yeah. sometimes we double up. And so – but the thing about it is uh, that I love about New York is if you want bagels – You'll get the greatest bagels right. ever yeah. made. Right. If Absolutely. you want, if you want pizza, you're going to get the biggest, sloppiest damn pizza, the best you've ever had. Right. If you want a deli, you're going to go to some of the greatest deli in the world. Now, yeah. you want to go to Le Bernardin and have one of the greatest meals ever. You bet. You want to go, you know, there's a little place already that was called the Jones Cafe. And my brother used to take me to, and I don't even know if the Jones is still there, but you walked in and they had a chalkboard. And that's what they were cooking that night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we've talked about this on other episodes, Brad, that, you know, if you want barbecue, you yeah. can get some great, you don't have, yeah, you're always going to get great barbecue in Memphis and Kansas City and Texas and Carolinas, but you can get great barbecue in New York City too. You can get anything you want there. Anyway, New York anyway. City was, was, was on my list. What's right. you, what's what, your, what else what's you got, your next Artie? Oh, I just had some honor, honorable mentions. All right, All right. we'll go fine. for it. Uh, one is certainly Montreal. Montreal All right. for fine dining. Yeah, fine dining, uh, uh, French cuisine. Yeah, and others. It's uh, if you want to dress up and go someplace really nice, Montreal is hard to beat. I've heard that. Who did you? Uh, who were you, who were you playing with the most when you went up to Montreal? I take it you've been up there. To play quite a bit, oh, well, several very, people, but uh, Perry Como. Uh, yeah, we, we, we didn't even mention. We Perry didn't mention Como. Perry Como, but now we. This is why we do our this top is why three. We get go down rabbit holes. <laughs> That's right. Tell us a little bit Tell about us a Perry, Perry Como, Como story. Yeah. Oh, I, I toured with, with Perry for a while, and we did the, the uh, springtime in San Francisco. It was really, really hilarious. They 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 decided they'd rent this old fishing boat, and which was really kind of decrepit. <laughs> and, and and they 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 took a, a fortunately a very stout rope and lowered my base down and myself from the dock on this fishing boat had Perry on there and then Jim Stafford playing clarinet and we played slow boat to China and they, <laughs> and, they and they were doing this long telephoto lens shot of Perry Como of course for sidelining because uh, audio was put in later sure yeah you know, sure. Because the, the motor was making too much noise to <laughs> hear Perry sing. And then, of course, there was the obligatory march down Lombard Street. Sure. Oh, sure. sure. That's fun. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned, Artie, you mentioned uh, Montreal. And actually on my honorable mention list is Toronto. Toronto is also a very big food city and some great restaurants in Toronto. One of the best steaks I've ever had was in Toronto. It's been several years they ago. They certainly but, belong on the list. Yeah. I was just uh, thinking, we were talking about fine dining, and I was just thinking, boy, you could, it's hard well, to be Montreal. Uh, you know, I, I, yeah, we don't, we don't have to limit this to, to, to fine dining. No, this I is anything. Fun, but, well, that's that's kind of yeah. how they yeah. honorable mention. Sure, sure. The other yeah. honorable mention has to be San Francisco. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, back in the 70s, uh, you could go to a place called the New Pisa Restaurant and get a reasonably priced 
seven course meal. Oh my gosh! Wow. It would come with the different all the different courses, yeah. not huge servings. Well, well, see, when you've got seven seafood. courses, you don't need huge servings. Exactly. No, I think no, that's they the should, thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, and, and then of course, seafood. Yeah. Ch- Chinatown in San Francisco, to me, yeah. even in New York. The dim sum is still better in San Francisco. Yeah. I well, love th- their sum. Chinatown was established a lot earlier than earlier, New York's was. Yeah, yeah, they're the real deal. And and again, that that blending of cultures. San Francisco was on my short list also. <laughs> what else you got, Keith? Well, I I uh, I'm going to do an honorable mention because I you know we all gravitate toward large markets. So I did a I'm going to call it a medium market honorable mention. And this is uh, I put St. Louis on the map because of the hill. Well, yeah. So, oh, yeah. That, so yeah. for for the uninitiated bon vivants out there, the hill is a section of St. Louis that was settled by Italian immigrants back in the what turn of the century, and then really, yeah, really nineteen hundred and and but really established itself probably in the thirties and forties. Great choice. And it is loaded with top notch Italian restaurants, really yep. top. And I mean everything from the checkered tablecloth to the white linen fine dining. The other thing I love about the Hill is that they keep a lot of their stuff local. So they have a local baker who provides all of their bread. They have a local butcher who provides a lot of their meats and charcuterie and that kind of thing. So it's it's all they keep as much as they can in their community. Volpe. Volpe is Volpe sausage. Mm. You can you can get that online. You can find that. I anywhere. know. But it's really a uh, it is a community. But the food there is unbelievable. Well, uh, the, I don't know if it's my turn or not. Well, no, but I'll, I'll go ahead and do number two. You, uh, I was just going to do. Oh, well, that was honorable mention? That was an honorable mention. Oh, but no, no, go ahead because no, 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 we've doubled no, no, on two no, no, years. No, no, well, no, let me do number two. So you I, go ahead. Dude. So Chicago was number two oh, for me. There you go. Yeah. Um, and simply, again, because you can get a lot of diversity. But if you're going to talk a Midwest mecca of food, I think Chicago's got to be on the list, uh, if nothing more than their steakhouses. Oh. And, uh, and you know – and, and the old style steakhouses, they're, and they're known for their style of pizza, and they've got great Italian food too. But um, do you consider I, that pizza? That it's not my favorite, but there are people who like deep dish pizza. I'm not one of them. You know, anybody who's got their own style of pizza named after them have to be, you know, at least acknowledged. Most well, certainly. Um, but I think Chicago for the, the, you know, the city of broad shoulders. They're they're the meat and potatoes, yeah, kind of place. You know, you can get a good steak a lot of places you in know, Chicago. You know, while, while we're on uh, Italian, just real briefly, I was going to mention that there is no place in the United States, unfortunately, where the tomatoes taste like they do, like in Spain and Italy. Yeah, I used to think it was just subjective on my part, but it's something that no, it's not. A lot of people agree. I don't know if it's because it's some heirloom that they can't export. It's the soil. I think it's that's the, it's it. It's the volcanic soil, and I'll tell you how I know this. So we're going to go down another rabbit hole here. <laughs> it's tomato time, I, ladies and gentlemen. I was going to save this for a, a "What Have You Been Watching" episode, but I've been watching a show that I was turned on to called Stanley Tucci Finding Italy. Oh, that's wonderful on CNN. And so he just did an episode. I highly recommend it. And you don't think of CNN as broadcasting this type of show because it is purely entertainment, has nothing to do with news. But Stanley Tucci, the great actor who obviously has Italian heritage, sure. travels the different food regions of Italy and the tomatoes. And I, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the brand name, but the tomatoes over there are legendary. These little Roma tomatoes, unfortunately, they get labeled 
the same all over the world, but they're not from this point. Yeah. <laughs> We're not getting them here in the United States. No, Sorry. absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. It's but, like, uh, it just it's makes like sense. Some Be- grapes, some grapes, you know, yeah. you could cut. Yeah. No, no, but when they go in the bottle, it's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense, though, because it does make a difference with coffee. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And oh, it does make gosh. a big difference with a lot of other things. Oh, soil. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wine, I mean, yeah. You, you know, you bet. And the, in, the, the reason why Hill Country, yeah, yeah. sourdough never tastes the same is because the. Uh, well, they say the water. For well, one thing, well, the, and the yeast, the yeast, it's and, the, or, or which pizza, is in the air, or it's pizza not dough you can package and, yeah. and export. Yeah, pizza dough in New York. They say the water, some sort of content <laughs> in the water that's got it. It's a, the water from the Hudson River. Yeah, that, well, that's the it's joke. The squealers. That's the joke. But you know, pizza dough, it has a different stretch to it. So, yeah. yeah. The the truth of the matter is, because of the aqueduct that was built a hundred years ago, New York City water is considered some of the best. Yeah. Ever, and so that might have something to do with what the it way they make possible. the dough because yeah. they. But you can't export something that just lives in the air. No, that's no. true. Yeah, yeah. And, that's, and that's the case with sourdough. All right, Brad. Whatever. Well, what we I'm going to go close to home. I'm going to go on the other side of the state, Kansas yeah. City. All right. The thing about Kansas City is it is considered a barbecue town, and it is. But they have a lot of really good places to no eat kidding. up there. No. Uh, yeah. Katie, my. Daughter lives there, and her uh, her husband and my and, and that yeah him, <laughs> Shit, God, and so yes him too, and my uh, my incredibly beautiful redheaded beautiful brilliant and brilliant exceptional and exceptional second only to my own grandson grandson yes, <laughs> but there is a place actually when they had their uh, wedding. It was called Hog Jaws, and there's Gates, and you know there's there's all the the biggies in Arthur uh, Bryant's. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's there's Hayward. There's yeah. bunches of them over there. This is a little bitty place over on the river on the north side in Kansas City. It was fantastic, and you know I think there's a lot of places like yeah. that. There's yeah. the Jones sisters that are in North Kansas City. They're a hoot. I can think of three, and there may be more. What I would call celebrity chefs in Kansas City now, new, especially new, young, up and comers, competition winning chefs that have their own places in Kansas City. It's a great food town. I agree. Great well, choice. The one I was going to talk tell you about is uh, what's fun about Katie and Matt is they're like the Kansas City Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. They always call me and say, "Hey, we got a new place." And so there's a place called Regaza and it's on right on Main, which sounds like it could be on the hill in St. Louis. A- absolutely <laughs> it could. It is not very big. It's small. Oh, it used to be a grocery store. Yeah. It was fantastic. Amazing wine cellar yeah all kinds of wines you know there's just that kind of stuff that's in kansas you know, city and, and you said small almost apologetically but i don't think that's a bad thing no. i think sometimes and if i we did get, that i apologize no no this no, no was i don't a think great it was, place i don't think you meant it to be that way but what i'm saying is that it doesn't have to be this big overblown production no and sometimes simple and small is better well, and in, and in Kansas City, you had—I mean, you had the Golden Ox, and you had you, oh, had, you had these you had these places in Kansas City for beef, of course. Uh, but yeah. there's so Hereford House, Hereford House. Oh my God, legendary! Yeah, and you had yeah you you've got so many little places around Kansas City. Jasper's was another one, oh, Italian yeah. Yeah. Italian yeah. restaurant. 
All right. What you got? Anything else? I don't. I, I've got I, one. Other, I've got one other one, and it's simply because I would never have thought of it if I hadn't been there last summer, and that is Vegas. Vegas has become wow. probably within the last ten years a food mecca because so many celebrity chefs have opened places out there, and it's not just their places. And Brad, you tell me the story of our friend Denny, who lived there for years, who would take you to the Thai place that was in the Bad part of town. <laughs> you doing hole in the wall, but yep. one of the top rated Thai restaurants in the country. If you know people who live in these towns and can point you to the uh, the little hidden gems, it's fun. It's great to go to the celebrity um, the celebrity restaurants and and uh, eat that fare and say, oh, you know, you've been there and, and seen you that. pay for it. Well, you do, but you know, well, that's like New York. You know, you're going to pay yeah. top dollar anywhere you go in New York. But man, if you can find those hidden gems, this has been amazing. Right. We've gone a lot of, down a lot of different rabbit holes on this show but that's all been fun and they've all been good they've all been fun they've all been good yeah Artie thank you very much for joining us Artie, oh, it's my pleasure this yeah. has been it's a been blast a it's been a lot of fun we might do this again I learned a lot we did. thank you for being here thank you for being with Bobby us Vons, this thank has been you. a blast yeah Bobby Vons thank you for joining us again and uh, until next time uh, cheers 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 We Like That Too is produced as a labor of love for the enjoyment of Bon Vivants everywhere to get information about our bottles and links to our guests, go to our website, welikethatpodcast.com. Tune in to new episodes by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, and other popular streaming apps. Please remember to rate, review, and share. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at We Like That Podcast. So everybody, hey, remember the numbers. One bottle, two good friends, and three top picks because... We like that too. We like that too. We like that too. We like that too. We like that too.